You're listening to The Bunker New York, live on Red Bull Radio. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick, and today I have a very special guest, my old friend Keith Fullerton-Whitman in the studio. Uh, he's going to start things off by playing us some other people's music that he's feeling right now, and then we're going to break for an interview in the middle of the show, and then he's going to share uh, some of the new stuff he's working on with us. So stay tuned for all that, and right now we're going to get straight into the mix with Keith Fullerton-Whitman. You're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio.
Thank mm -hmm. you. 
You're listening to Red Bull Radio. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick, and my special guest today is Keith Fullerton-Whitman, who uh, has been basically in the mix for the last hour, playing us other people's music. Um, is that something you get to do very often? Not so much. Not as much as I'd like. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you're, I mean, you've, you're kind of one of the most insane music collectors I know, like paying attention to what everybody's doing. So it, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, in a way, yeah, sure. I mean, I like I like to get the opportunity when it arises. I always take it, you know. <laughs> right. So, like radio, chill out rooms, maybe festivals. Like, when do when do you get to do this? I mean, mostly just local. I mean, I've been living in Australia for the last three years. The only opportunities I've had to DJ have been like regular, like pub kind of DJ gigs. You know, there's right. a couple of these amazing neighborhood dance club kind of places in Melbourne that have. You know, like they'll have a function one shoehorned in the corner, like basically two speakers next to each other. And that's the end, you know, there'll be like 20 people in there. But, you know, somebody will have thought to put it in there. So right. DJ places like that, playing so, this kind of stuff, playing ambient. And, you know, so you could stuff. just show up and play this kind of stuff totally. in your yeah. at your neighborhood pub yeah. and people were yeah. feeling it. Yeah, my favorite is a place called Laser Pig. I've never actually, I mean, I haven't done much there, but it's like, you know, they have regular weekly gigs. It's a pizza place, like an old school family pizza place, but they have club nights, you know. Like Stephen O'Malley and Oren Barchi DJ there once I went in. It was, you know, people eating pizza with Stephen playing black metal, you know, DJ. So pretty right. cool, you know. So that's the kind of that vibe I go really for. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as I see or hear of something like that going down, I'm like, oh, cool, I want to be involved, you know. So, Right. Yeah. yeah, there's actually a lot of, um, there's kind of this renewed interest in the chill out room in New York over the last, I don't know, I would say few years uh, that seems to be accelerating. So there might be some opportunities yeah. here. I hope so. Um so you mentioned you were in Australia for three years. Why? I mean, you're an American. You grew up here. What What led you to Australia? I mean, short answer, romance, I guess. But yeah, yeah. so romance and domesticity. I had a baby and uh, my partner and I moved over there. Yeah, it was really nice. It was the right time to do it. We had a bit of a buffer and we wanted to get, we were living in Boston, you know, which is great. I lived in Boston for 20 years. I love it there. But it was, um, it was a time for a change. You know, we didn't want to raise our son in Boston for whatever reason, you know. So we went to the greener pastures of Melbourne and sort of didn't look back. Right. Was until, he, was he yeah. born there? No, he was born in Cambridge, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He lived there for the first three months. But um, we, uh, yeah, we went to Melbourne just because we kind of wanted to change things. And Sarah, my partner, is Australian. So we, you know, it was just a nice place to be um, closer to her family and have all that kind of stuff. So family support. Yeah, family support. But also, I mean, there's an amazingly incredible music scene in Melbourne. It's very happening. There's lots going on, you know. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, given how much you had going on, you said being in Cambridge for 20 years, yep. you had uh, Mimarolu, which for people who didn't know was your, like, online record store, mm -hmm. but not selling, well, not selling downloads. It was only... No, it was definitely was just records and... Records and God CDs. forbid, CDs and cassettes and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you had that and you're, you know, you travel the world, but your established music career in the U.S., like how, how did that all translate to suddenly moving to literally the other side of the world? You know, I was, I was mostly flying to Europe to play music for the last 10 years. I almost, I mean, not exclusively, but I mean, that's where I go more often than I was to Europe. And it's yeah. like a, a six hour flight versus a 14 hour flight. I know you say it like that. It sounds crazy, but you know, if you're getting in an airplane, you're on an airplane, you know, it doesn't matter where yeah. you're going or how long you're going there. It's an overnight flight, you know, so... I could always justify living anywhere in the world and just having always having that fallback of being able to go to Europe and play concerts. So I got really used to that 14-hour flight, you know, from, from Melbourne yeah. to Dubai or Abu Dhabi to somewhere in Europe, you know, for the weekend and then come back. So Yeah, as over mm -hmm. the years, I've kind of slowly started to DJ more and more and travel further and further. And it seems more comfortable. The, yeah, yeah, the thought of flying to be on a plane for six or seven hours used to seem crazy. 
Mm-hmm. And then you, I've flew to Japan a couple of times, and that's 13 hours or something. Yeah, I mean, from and New York, once, it's, yeah, yeah, it's broken up. You go to LA, and then you go to Tokyo. Yeah. It's not that bad. No, you can go direct. Oh, from really? New York. From New York? It used to be, oh, used to be Delta would do direct from JFK to Tokyo, yeah. yeah. I'm not, I think I now you from, might have to go through yeah, Detroit, yeah, yeah. actually. Yeah. No. That's it. I flew from Tokyo to Detroit coming back here to New yeah. York, and that was really easy to do, you know? It felt yeah. easy. It, think of it like psychologically you're going into a hotel room for... 14 hours, but your hotel room is literally the shape <laughs> yeah, of your seat. If you only know? it was as comfortable as a hotel room. <laughs> I can get really comfortable in all kinds of weird places, but that's kind of, you know, for me, that's really natural to travel. It's easy. So, but you're, I mean, you're used to it. Basically. I'm used to it. Yeah. And I liked, I mean, I, being at home and coming back to Melbourne was always so amazing. It was just like, ah, oh, it's green and verdant, beautiful. The oceans there, the rainforest there, you know, it's like kind of everything you need. You right. know, who actually lives in Melbourne now is Carl Cox. He lives in like a, a southern, <laughs> like a suburb of Melbourne <laughs> called Frankston. And I've seen him around at like the record stores every now and then. The first time I saw him, I was like, what are you doing here? I thought he was playing a gig or something. I was he's like, no, man, I live here. Wow. Well, so weird. You know? Of all the people I thought we would talk about in this interview, I know, exactly. Carl, Carl Cox, Cox was of all very, very low on yeah. the list. Yeah. But it's funny to see him as like a guy you'd see in a record store. Like you never think of him being in any no place, yeah. you know, being that I'd guy. I never so. think of him being anywhere other than like in the DJ booth at some mega, mega festival. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Um, so now you're you're back here, which I we were talking about before mm-hmm. the show. I actually figured out the lamest way possible, yeah. which is that I kept seeing in my on Facebook that you had RSVP two events right. that were yeah. happening yeah. in Brooklyn. Totally. Like, yeah. Did he move here? Totally. Is he yeah. here? Yeah. Uh, so you're here now. Uh, how did that happen? Why? Um, I mean, it was just like I mean, like I said, there was a change moving there, and there's a change moving back. I mean, you know, it was kind of. I was having some ongoing visa things in Australia that were I'd rather not talk about, but it was like, it was a time to also, we had a buffer to make a change, you know? Right. And it was like, we could come back here, you know? Um, so we did, you know, and my son is just about to be old enough to go into kindergarten. So it's kind of, you know, we have to choose now where we're going to be in the long term. And, for, and stick yeah. to it for a while. Yeah. I deeply, deeply love living in Australia. It's great. But I, it was, I was finding it hard to meet, state the uh, requirements of the visa to keep staying there, you know, yeah, over I mean, and over this again. Is, this so. is a, yeah, this is a problem in, that yeah. people have in a lot of places, yeah. including the United States. Exactly. Right. You're, you're good here. Um, so wh- when did you come back to Brooklyn and what have you been um, up to? For good, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. So, and I've been laying low as much as possible. Like you said, RSVPing to a lot of events that I intend to go to. And I go to maybe like one in every five <laughs> things, but yeah, going out and seeing stuff, you know, I, what did I do? I went to the bunker, of course. I kind of snuck in there. Yeah, I didn't even me. know that you was were great. coming. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. I saw, you know, early events in the night and then, uh, what else? Uh, oddly, I went to see Francois Gavorkin at the good, not the uh, output. Yeah, um, and that was really nice. A friend of a friend of a friend is doing sound there, so I went. I was like, oh, cool, I'll go and check it out. You know? Right. I've always loved Francois. Okay? I used to see. We used to go to Body and Soul and stuff back in the day. So. Oh yeah, yeah, um, I used to go to those. So it was kind of a neat to go and see that, see what he was up to, and then the rest of it's all just been like you know art and noise and you know improv gigs and stuff like that. So just kind of getting reacclimated. It's been years since I've been like had enough free time to actually go out and do stuff. So right. Yeah. And have you been working on your own music since you've been here as yeah, well? Yeah, that's the main thing is that um, I had this window where I could just focus on um, finishing projects before my family kind of came over to meet me here. They just arrived a few days ago. So in those like three weeks that I was here, it was like I had this amazing <laughs> resource of time to sit and focus on music that right. normally when I'm traveling, I can't really do that stuff. But so I kind of like hammered down. I was like, when people ask to do these things, I'm going to finish them. So I, I finished them, my long beleaguered third cranky studio record that's coming out hopefully next year, you know, um, early on in that. But it's the, the audio was done and that was like a huge labyrinthine process getting it done, you know. Right. It was recorded in a, a, a grain silo in Switzerland earlier in the year, you know, with yeah. this crazy 45 second reverb. So 
impossible to mix, but also kind of making compositional sense of it was tricky until I like, sat down and was like, okay, I'll commit to finishing it. I know what it's going to sound like. I just have to solve the acoustic problems <laughs> of mixing 45-second reverb you know, right. into a sound. So. Well, that, that's really cool to hear because yeah. actually one of the things I was going to talk about was yeah. your relationship with Cranky and ask if yeah. that was still ongoing because well, yeah. it's been, when was when was the last release? Last live record was 2005, so geez, 13 years at this point, you know. Wow. And yes, I, mean, I still I still keep Joel in close orbit. You know, he's still like a close friend and confidant. He's kind of like the guy that when I have any kind of music licensing or kind of deal or anytime I sign a piece of paper, it usually goes through him, even if right. it's material that I don't do for him because I trust him implicitly, you know. Okay. So he's very much been there. And then maybe 10 years ago, there was a plan of doing these four LP-only releases that I kind of hemmed and hawed over for ages. So mostly like archival, like guitar, computer, playthrough stuff. I remember hearing you... Yeah talk about those or write about those yeah it's one of those things like i felt really good about them and then the next year i'd feel like eh, this is kind of airing my dirty laundry a bit you know it's like stuff that wasn't you know didn't make the cut for the original record you know? right and then i kind of like i you know i've made peace with all that stuff i love it it's, it's you know it's like a diary basically all that material but something about the idea of putting four lps out simultaneously just seems so bourgeois <laughs> you know like it seems like a totally like this you know i'm not putting out a nice image of being like yeah i have all this material here pick and choose you know like yeah but then we were like oh we'll do it as a series but then yeah you know the first one comes out the second one doesn't do as well the third one you know it's like it's got to be all or nothing at all so that's still kind of on the table but it's not you know i, I think that the new material is kind of i'm feeling really strong about yeah. it so it's you know I think people really like uh, box sets and bigger things exactly. that come out yeah. all together. Well, that people are it. really into that, like the thing that looks really cool on your shelf and yeah. has this yeah. impressive packaging. Yeah. Not that I want to play into this whole boutique kind of reissue <laughs> compilation kind of industry, which is humming along right now. It's doing fine. You know, there's just this right. embarrassment of riches with choice these days with that kind of thing. You know, I can't remember the big the last like big massive archival box I bought. Probably one of those vinyl on demand things. But you know, that's, yeah, you know. There's just a lot of that going around, and Christmas time is coming up, so. <laughs> yeah. So, did you you kept the record store going? Yeah, totally. When you when you moved, you changed. What did you change the name to? Something to broken music. It was just like pick a name out of a hat. You know, it was going to be like organized sound or broken music, and then we were kind of hemmed and hawed, and it was like, oh, there's a UK music journal called Organized Sound, so we can't use that. Broken music just seemed like it was before the book got reissued, which it just did. You know, the James right. Hoff just and just did it at um, Printed Matter. I'm sorry, uh, Primary Information. Okay. Um, and it was kind of like the, the good name because it was like this guide to art, you know, visual artists' records, basically, you know. And so I used the name to kind of promote this agenda, you know. I'm not carrying all this old underground stuff. It's more like archival and this kind of stuff. So so but, uh, you ch why did you change the name change had to happen? Uh, like because, for business you know, reasons? or not just for business It was like reasons, a different, no. different I mean, approach? Mr. Mimarolu, Elon Mimarolu, died like, you know, how many years ago? Five, six years ago, longer. Right. And uh, I remember his wife got in touch at one point and she was like, I have my husband's archives. I know that you're a fan. Can you deal with them? And I was like, ah, I'm just, I named the store after him. That's really, that was like the length of my <laughs> like, connection. Um, the archives are now at Columbia, actually. And uh, Tommy McCutcheon, who does Unseen Worlds, one of the things he's doing right oh, now is cool. going through it all. So I don't know if he's for the label or just because that's So you job, made that connection. He just got in touch with me recently and he was like, you got to come see this stuff. It's a lot of interesting stuff in here, you know, like all of his scripts and books. He wrote all these books about music, you know. Wow. Yeah. So it's interesting. So you were still selling the same, like, was it still the same concept, the store, once you moved yeah. to Australia? Yeah, but it was it was on an island very far away from the rest of the world. I was, so I mean, the, of, I guess you know, the yeah, obvious yeah. question here is like, yeah. how did this, I, I mean, I was like a huge customer at Mimarolu, but I guess once you moved to Australia, I just kind of thought, 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pay to ship you like know, I'm not gonna shop at a record store in Australia so how how did that work out for you like how do you did you do you feel like you gained a new customer base did a lot of people stick with you did yeah. a lot of people drop off they did all I mean it, it was closer to Asia so I kept all my Japanese and you know the, the customers I've had for years there it was actually much much cheaper to ship to Japan, Japan of course yeah it's right very there. cheap it was like six dollars to mail an LP so um, I kept all them the diehard European customers some of the US ones but was nice about it was that I had it in a roll-up garage, like kind of classic Brooklyn style. So like on a Saturday, I could just say, hey, this shop is open today and just roll up the garage and people could come by, you know, like when I mean, it rarely happened, you know, in that like big social way, but people came by the house all the time, you know? So I also wanted to ask, it seems like, I don't know if this is a new thing, but it's something I just noticed in the past year or so. It seems like you're, you're doing performances of specific pieces, like you're doing playthroughs and you're doing mm -hmm. redactions is that yeah. is that a new thing is there some like renewed interest in these older pieces or what's yeah what's going on there what the, the playthroughs like i did the 20th anniversary of cranky festival in chicago that was well, five years ago now because right. next year is the 25th yeah they're so. doing aren't they doing 25 now they're doing one in new york ambient church i think is doing yeah a, like a big show here so and then that that stuff there's a bunch of stuff coming up all throughout the next year i yeah. think like september of next year is officially the anniversary but right um but i did the 20th and i played probably the guitar please for the first time in eight years or something like that and it felt right and those people slowly figured out that it was on the on the table again so when people were writing about playing at festivals they'd be like oh maybe try doing this you know we right. thought about doing playthroughs and then uh, Russ and Chris actually from Labyrinth got in touch because apparently the night, the, the year before, at the end of the festival, they had all driven back on the bus listening to it, and there was some sort of like hand-holding communal beautiful moment, you know. So they were like, "We have to have you come and play, but just that, you know, this year." So I went to Labyrinth just a few months ago and did it. And that was that was your first time going to Labyrinth, oh, yeah. performing at Labyrinth. Yeah, that was the first time. Um, I was there a few years ago. What what did you think? It was incredible. It was yeah. one of the most like significant like festival experiences I think I've ever had. It was really the whole thing of just like you kind of take a bus in with everybody from Tokyo and you're there together and it's very it felt right, you know. It felt very social and cool, right. you know. And a lot of the people I didn't know became friends by the end of the week and the people I'd known for years we just kind of strengthened our friendships, you know. Which right. is really good. There's something really beautiful about it. I'm not I don't normally speak in these really prosaic prosaic kind of spiritual terms, but it was very powerful in that familial way. I think something about it was really cool. Yeah, I and, mean, I think yeah. a lot of people feel that way about that festival, myself yeah. included, just just having been once, but it was, yeah, super special yeah. experience. And it was a nice lineup this year. It was like Drew McDowell was there, so I wasn't the only, like, weirdo or kind of whatever <laughs> you want to call it. The only, like, non-kind-of yeah, flurry kind of person. Yeah, not techno but, people. Yeah. Was, did John Elliott play this year? He did. John, usually, and, John he and Drew played a... Um, Organic Dial set, so I had to play that Organic Dial track. I noticed you played set. it in yeah, the yeah. set, yeah. So you they were, that was, they played the Sunrise set on Sunday, like at 9 a.m. Uh-huh. It was crazy. Like at the know? end of like the Saturday last day, night. You know, the, the Sunday is just like 9 to 1 p.m. or 5 p.m. or something like that. So and then the festival ends in the afternoon, you know. Right. So they had to get there at 9 a.m., you know, to kind of camp out, survive the night before, and get there to see them, which was kind of cool in a way. It was First, I was like, this is a bit of self-sabotage, but I'm like, no, it makes sense because they played this absolutely like, like from a whisper to a scream kind of set over two yeah. hours. It was very cool. Oh, wow. They did a two-hour set. Yeah, of just like very slow, like one sound every few minutes kind of, you know, and building into this kind of, you know, nice kind of crescendo. It was very, very good. Yeah. It really kind of took me by surprise. I mean, I've known John for years since Emerald's days, you know, but... Yeah, I think um, I might have maybe met John through you or yeah maybe. maybe maybe introduced to a lot of his music through Mimaralu is maybe the yeah. more accurate like i have tons of old tapes and things yeah, i mean he something was something about those guys at the time they, they were doing it 
there was really not a lot of love for that style of music. And I feel like the, the strength of the way they pushed through it all, all the kind of stigma about whatever Berlin school kind of electronic music, they just absolutely love that stuff. You know, there's nothing ironic yeah. about any of it. Like, it's actually just purely interest and, and you know, yeah, wanting, no. wanting to explore it. And I really thought that was cool at the time. I still do. I, mean, I think John and Steve and Mark and all those guys are great. You know, they're really, they're all on their own paths now. But the, but the thing that brought them together was this kind of, like, almost uncool thing that they made really interesting, you know. And yeah, really, and there was, I mean, at least, again, in, like, the Mimarolu universe, there were so many, for a while after Emeralds really kind of yeah. broke through, there were so many... Yeah, since, I mean, it was great. It opened up a thing, and it, and it burned bright again, and then died out like it always does in the underground. But it was a nice time, you know. Yeah. And like, what was cool about championing them at the time I was so interested in is because other people that didn't know anything about the whole other early electronic music kind of thing, you know, where all these kids were like kind of Emerald's acolytes were coming by, and being like, "Yo, you got any Luke Ferrari, man? You got any Francois Bell?" And I was like, "Yes, thank right. you, thank you for coming to me. This is, the, you know, I'm the right guy to talk to about this stuff because I get where you're coming from, and also." There's this whole world we need right. to talk about, you know. Well, where do you think they stuff. were coming from before that? Was it like noise I don't know. kids? Yeah, Wolf Eye's kind of no fun scene, you know. Yeah. It was all that kind of thing, you know. But it was right. cool because there was actually this really, this really um, strong interest in going backwards and finding out about all that precursor stuff, you know. Going back and hearing kind of interesting transgressive electronic music from the '60s, you know. Yeah. Not just Throbbing Gristle, but stuff before that, you know. Yeah, and like you were saying, a lot of a lot of that stuff is finally being reissued now. Yeah. Like, strangely, I got into a lot of that music from shopping at the Princeton Record Exchange mm. when I lived in New Jersey in, like, the mid-90s. That place and was there crucial. Was, there crucial. was somebody there, I mean, Leisure Muffin, who's one of my label artists, he, he kn knows the guy, I can't remember, but there was somebody there who was just very interested in that stuff in a time when seemingly nobody was, and you could just go, they had, like, some 20th century avant-garde yeah section that, that section and you was could legendary go, you could you know you could pull stuff out of there for like two or three dollars oh, yeah. this like i got todd Docksodder records right, exactly. for a dollar 99 so I. I got stuff all that my, made no yeah, sense yeah. exactly Docksodder, all my entire collection of all that kind of regional early electronic music all came from princeton oh wow so i went to high I school in new jersey so i'll drive down there i didn't realize that yeah. makes well that makes so yeah. much sense yeah. i never talked to you about that i never realized totally. that <laughs> yeah, and Kita is really into that place as well she yeah. went to princeton or she was friends with yeah. people down there so she would go and kind of she, i think all that stuff that she got into was it's, yeah, it's well. not nearly as great now, but no. like there was there was it's a still time, there though. But it's still there, it's and still it's still there. you can still yeah. find. It's still a fun place to shop, but there was a while where yeah, that was that was legendary. At least legendary in my own mind. That section totally. that yeah, I yeah. at a time when I was in college and had no money, and was able to get into all this. Like like before then, I don't know that I knew that much electronic music existed from that era. Mm. Um, Aside from like Tangerine Dream and right. Craftwork. But the thing that's cool about that story is you could go in there and they were always playing that stuff in the store. It wasn't like they were playing Radiohead right. or whatever. They were playing <laughs> Dot Dot Store. They were playing Bernard Parmigiani. Like so many times I would walk in, it'd be a rainy day, and I would kind of get down there and have breakfast at the pancake parlor around the corner and then go and spend the whole day, you know, and print thinking in Princeton. And they would be playing amazing stuff over the, the sound system as if it was just normal music. And I have something about that it took away from it was like, People just love experimental music as if it was to them, it's like any other thing, you know? Right. So one time I went in there and listening to Feldman's second string quartet, which is just like four or five hour, you know? So they had it on CD. And it was just like this repeating figure that dies away every 45 seconds and there's another chord and then it dies away. And maybe we went on for like three hours. I was like, this is incredible. What is this? And the guy was like, oh, this is something. Yeah, check it out. He didn't even know what it was. He was just like, <laughs> he was like also like, oh, this looks cool. I put it on, you know? It's like, great. This is really nice. Thank you for sharing it with me, you know? I bought it, you know, and studied it. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, 
So I noticed you you've started a YouTube channel. Is this kind of a it's more of like a new thing? Yeah, this is literally airing my dirty laundry. It's kind of like all the <laughs> <laughs> like all the the sessions. Like I travel around, I do residencies between the festivals during the week, you know. And I'm recording so much stuff these days, but I don't have the kind of like patience to sit. I, w- I wish I had it. It was like a, it's a deep longing kind of thing to to sit and and really massage things into releases. But I make great music and I make great recordings and kind of fun stuff, but. I can never kind of sit and just, you know, get it into something that it can come out. So the YouTube channel is this therapy. It's like, instead of this stuff just lying idle on a hard drive, I might as well just put it somewhere, anywhere, you know? Right. Not like sell it on Bandcamp, not turn it into like a release. Just make it this kind of some right. some weird, you know, nether, you know, world between release and existence, you know? And it's just fun to be able to have it be so diplomatic and, and available to people who want to hear it. So Right. Were you, do, is there, do you still feel like there's a lot of interest in, I mean, obviously you said you have the album coming on Cranky, yeah. but from other, you've worked with so many labels over mm-hmm. the year. I remember for a while there, it seemed like you had a new tape coming out every month or I two I love that time when the tape thing was the, the second wave of tape labels, where it was it's, just so almost promiscuous. So you'd meet somebody and they'd be like, oh, do you want to do a tape for me? Like, yeah, I'll make an hour of music for you to sell whatever, 20 copies. But sure, of course, <laughs> you know, here you go. You know, I don't take it seriously. Is that, that not, fun, you know? I, I mean, I've kind of fallen, yeah. I've kind of fallen off paying attention. Is that not yeah. such a thing anymore okay the, so psychologically i don't see a permanency to like the soundcloud youtube kind of way of doing it because it's a thing i can just if i if something comes out of putting a whole un, unedited recording on youtube i can just pull the plug and then turn it into something else but people that are interested in just hearing it in its raw state can you know right that's something that's nice about that so uh, a tape to me is too final it's too like once it hits discogs it's real you know yeah <laughs> it's, it's like, like it's you like made the, you know, whether you yeah, really yeah, want to yeah. consider it yeah, a finished yeah. album or yeah, something yeah. you've basically yeah. exactly right and this an is album. like i mean in the last like three months i've recorded like you know hours and hours of music in all these different places and studios all over the world different instruments different ideas trying them out but you know, i can't just like flood the marketplace with records because i don't know how that'll work out just one or two every now and then is nice you know the ones i really feel strongly about get marketed turn into something you know but the right the casual stuff you know, the hookup kind of stuff just turns into like, you know, the YouTube thing is an hour of a really cool sound. Yeah, this sounds great. Yeah. Synthesizer generative piece. Cool. Let's just put it on YouTube. Right. The automatically generated video of stills. Yeah, easy. Just do yeah. it. it takes me an hour to do it, you know. So if anybody wants to check that out, yeah. I think I, I think it was kind of a funny URL, but it's just Google Keith Fullerton Women YouTube. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure <laughs> you'll, yeah. you'll find it. I, uh, I was listening funny. to the Labyrinth set was up there. Yeah, totally. Uh, there was something from GRM that I listened to oh, today yeah, totally. that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's an Ode to Pansonic. Yep. Uh, mm. And I mean, there's all kinds of stuff, but that was just like kind of, I just discovered this a few hours before we did the show. Right. That was yeah, what yeah, I, yeah. that's what I, I had I keep it on the down low for conversations <laughs> like this, you know, and I guess we're blowing it up now, but that's fine. If you want to look at it, of course, it's all yeah. there. Yeah, if you want to have listen to like hours and hours and hours of just random but interesting stuff that's all on there. Right. And uh, I don't even know if I have a question here, but I was just I was just kind of going down a Keith Fulton Whitman at the bunker trip down memory lane oh, yeah. to just think about and try to remember all the times we've done that and had you play at the party um, and realized it's it's been a while because the last one was in 2013 right. and that was that extremely strange but really killer party at the K&K buffet. Do you remember that oh one? Oh my God. The one at the yeah, Chinese buffet with yeah. Regis and Bill Kuligas. That was killer, and... of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was right after Sarah and I got together. So we were there. And then... Um, you brought pizza from yeah, totally. uh, Connecticut. If I, remember. I think from, that might be... Yeah, I think that was Frank maybe, Pepe's. That's right. Totally. That was the first time down. I had Frank Pepe's. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I was kind of stressed out and you were like, do you want some pizza? And I was like, eh, and you were like, you want this pizza? <laughs> I probably was, was like, do I really? And I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah. And I've actually... I've actually that place. No, I've made... 
at least two or three treks that I can oh, think good. of since okay. then. Like, yeah. if it's within an hour of where I'm driving, yeah. I think it's worth Well, it's a at journey. that crucial, like, 91, 95 nexus. So if you're yeah. going into either of those roads, you're always going to end up right within a few blocks of that place, you know? Yeah. It's really good. That place is incredible. That's, like, a real American success story. I right. Think, you know? And then, let's see, the one before that was... Uh, we did a few at Public Assembly. This one was with J.D. Emanuel. Oh, which yeah, Which, again, I t- I'd kind of totally yeah, forgotten yeah, yeah, about. Yeah. J.D. Emanuel, Renee Hell, Ragliani, and Michael Pollard. Um, and I did a duo with J.D., that's right. Yeah, we did like a Oh, a God, see, thing. I totally yeah. forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, that was really great, actually. I still talk to him all the time, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, me too. Yeah, yeah. He's a he, very, he, like, very nice guy. He, st- yeah. he, he stays in touch. Yep. You always get a happy birthday thing. Always. If yeah, a record yeah, comes yeah. out, he sends me a copy. Yeah. And this is all because, you know, I booked him yeah. once and... Yeah. I love that guy to peaches pieces. He's like, you know, if I'm like, does anybody can anybody solve this deeply technical thing? You know, and he's like, Good luck, Keith. You know, it's, it's not like a solution, <laughs> but he's just like, you know, you can you can do it, buddy. You know, that kind of thing. Oh, I need more people in my life like this, you know. So it's pure encouragement, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good dude. And then I guess going back a little further, 2011, we did the No Way Back outer that was the first time we did what uh, i don't think it was assembly yeah i don't think yeah, it was yeah. called the outer space room yet yeah. maybe it was eventually we we kind of named it after john elliott it just really became the, oh, that's cool it's okay. still yeah. to this day uh we do the no way back party in detroit on memorial day weekend every year it's become pretty legendary actually and i think it's been since i don't know how many since it it went to this place called tangent gallery and we found it had always been at a one-room venue in detroit yeah. and when we had a second room nobody wanted to do the competing dance floor thing right so we kind of went back to the idea of this original public assembly which was i think the first new york no way back with two rooms where that's what we did and that was with container b mask ricardo denoso who just put out of a new course. album yeah yeah Mountains. that show yeah, yeah that was a really that was really like nice. looking back yeah, at yeah. that flyer i was kind of like wow i almost can't believe that we did that lineup it was cool. At the bunker yeah, yeah. I remember at that, that time. Well. Yeah. Uh, Ricardo and I drove down from Boston together because I don't know if he still lives there, but he was back then. But yeah, yeah I'm not really sure. Nice. I haven't I haven't caught up with him for a while. Yeah. And then the first one, or at least the first one that I could fi- easily find a record of, because it's possible that you did one for like Chris Sattinger and I a long time ago. When oh, we it's a it's started tonic the thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, I remember I going to them. I don't know if I ever actually played Yeah, I don't, I can't don't yeah, either, yeah. but some of those are not as like easily googleable yeah. but the, the first one i could find was also public assembly and that was with daniel menche in 2008 oh god i remember that i remember daniel, <laughs> daniel trying to get me to go to the gym with him before soundcheck it's like yo dude we can just go for an hour it'll be great and i was like uh maybe uh i don't think i ended up doing it but yeah that guy's lovely awesome dude he's quite a character yeah, yeah. so anyway yeah just i guess wanted to do that trip down yeah memory that's lane. got a lot of good memories there definitely yeah yeah i mean oh, I still, and there was you know, oh wait yeah. there was one more i forgot 2010 which i kind of forgot because i actually I produced this party, but they asked me to produce it after I already knew I wouldn't be in town, so I wasn't there, but it was with the Moritz von Oswald trio. Oh, it, Warsaw. Uh, Warsaw, that's right. Which I yeah, think was, was totally. criminally underattended from what I recall. But it was but a nice gig, though. That was the trio with, like, Sasu Rapati and Max Loderbauer, the, right? The, yeah, first, yeah, the yeah. first version of the, the trio, trio, which that, yeah, I yeah. mean, that stuff still, I still it's go killer. back to those albums. Yeah, those They're Honest so Johns records are great. Yeah, totally. That's, um, yeah, that was a really nice gig. That's the first time I had met him, actually, you know? Yeah. Uh, he obviously a ridiculously huge fan, you know? Yeah. You know, of Moritz. So it was, like, kind of huge for me. I was kind of nervous. I haven't been that nervous about meeting anybody in a while, but I've, I had too many unanswered questions, you know? I'm I'm yeah. the same way. I felt like I, since I booked him a couple of times, I, I mean, I had to meet him. I had to yeah. talk to him. So I did, and it was great, and we've actually become 
very friendly. I don't know if I want to say friends, but very friendly yeah. over the years. And yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember once I was at Movement Festival in Detroit, and Mark Ernestus was talking to Dan Bell, and Dan was kind of waving me over, and I was just like, I, I wouldn't go <laughs> over. I didn't do it. I'm like, I don't, yeah. I don't think I want to meet Mark Ernestus. Totally. Like, that's sometimes just, it's better that's to be just, a fly on the wall. Yeah, than totally. It is to be involved, like, I don't, you know? yeah, yeah. I don't want to know what that's yeah. like. I'll. Yeah. I'm, I'm close I enough. saw Mark Ernestus DJ at, at uh, what's that one, Terraforma, you know, that festival? Yeah. It was kind of like, you know, outside of um, Venice. And it was the same. It was like the third day he was doing like a Rock City DJ set. But it, it you know, every, it's like Labyrinth. Everybody stays outside in tents. And it was like a torrential downpour. So the entire like camping plane got flooded. So we moved the party inside to like the Via, Via Carnati. So it was like everybody was just running through the woods in the rain with speakers and like bits of things just to kind of set the party back up inside. And the second it was operable, Mark just started and it was like perfect, you know? Yeah. We all just kind of huddled together for warmth and he just played like the best music for like three hours. You yeah. Know? And afterwards he was totally easy to talk to. Before I was like, I can't go up and talk to him. It's just too stressing, you know? But yeah, I don't think it would necessarily be yeah. difficult. It's no, just kind of like, he's it's just this, yeah. to me, he's this really, totally. really larger yeah. than life, yeah. like important person in my, yeah appreciation of Same music. with me. Yeah, yeah. It's like those guys are so mythical and then you meet them you're like, oh wait, they are people but all those secrets of how that music came together are really locked in there. You know? Yeah. I don't know how to get it out. I want to know, you know? Like I want to yeah. know how that music was made but it's too many. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, man, we've talked for a lot longer than I even thought we would even though I thought this one would go on for a while. We've got about... 38 minutes left here okay. you're what we, for the second half of the show why don't you talk a little bit about what you're gonna play yeah. and then we'll get into it yeah i went back and forth about what i was going to bring in but i have these onyx pieces that are kind of like it's hard to explain they're probably the most like linear in like <laughs> like a, a bunker sensibility kind of thing i've done in the last few years they're like live modular synth not like techno but they definitely have like a rhythmic pulse but they're still using all that generators kind of framework stuff so it's uh -huh. all the melodies and bass lines and things are being generated by like analog computing concepts within the synth so it's kind of like non-repeating kind of generative, generative techno kind of music, but it's not the most well-produced stuff, but I love the sound of it. It's kind of got this real, I don't know, it's really, um, it's interesting and I'm just gonna play it for you. Cool, <laughs> sounds good. So we're gonna get into some of uh, Keith's own music here, uh, Keith Fullerton Whitman, and we've got about 37 minutes left, so keep it locked. You're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. We've been listening to Keith Fullerton Whitman playing uh, some of his deep, deep cuts. This stuff is unreleased. It's not even on YouTube. It's only exists on the vault and I guess now on this radio show. Uh, thanks a lot for coming in. No worries. Thank yeah. you for having me. Great this to see great. you. It was a really, really good time reminiscing. Um, so we're only here for a couple more minutes. You've been listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. Mm-hmm. 